Hey, what is up, everybody? Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Centered from Reality podcast. There is no humming sound behind me. I am no longer driving through either Wyoming, what's, let's see, Utah, Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois. What a, what a busy week. I am out of Chicago. I've, I've been calling it Escape from Chicago. Finally gone. Finally out of there. You know, it was a great city. It served its purpose, but the master's program ended, and the city's just changing. It's not a place that I really want to see myself long term. You know, there's just an uncertainty in the air. The crime got worse. The homelessness has not gotten any better. And it's just kind of a gritty city, and maybe I'm just blessed, and I probably am just blessed growing up in California, especially in the Tahoe area. Southern California is great, and, and Madrid is a beautiful city, so I, I think I just have been blessed, but it's it's nice to get out of Chicago. On that note, I'll probably cover it later in the week. Um, the mayoral race <laughs> is actually pretty entertaining right now because Lori Lightfoot who has kind of become the Fox News poster child of kind of everything that's wrong with the left, is up for re-election, and let's just say it's not going particularly well. I think she has like 25% of the vote right now, and there's another guy whose name's escaping my head at the time who's at like 22%, so not a great look if you are the incumbent, but she dealt with everything from the COVID pandemic to pretty much the race riots after George Floyd to a bad economy, the overturning of Roe. Look, like her life has not been easy, but my big issue with her is that she usually attacks critics in a very like woke ideology way. Basically, she always calls them racists or bigots or whatever ist or ist you want to call. And yeah, the city's kind of been a failure under her. Like, she's clashed with the police union. She's clashed with police officers. The left doesn't like her. The right doesn't like her. And let's just be honest. Like, the city has a mass shooting about every other day. The violence has gotten worse. And Chicagoans just don't feel safe. And maybe it's time for change. But it's bad when you have, like, her attacking some of the other candidates for being too far right, attacking other ones for being too far left. And she's just trying to balance this weird middle and it's not working. And there's a chance she's going to lose. She might not even make the runoff or she might not even make the next round. Sorry, not the runoff. And it's kind of entertaining to see. So I'll probably do a, I'll probably do a longer episode on that going down the week. But today I want to talk about, I'm going to mainly focus on the war in Ukraine. I want to talk about the tanks that we are now actually sending to Ukraine. I want to talk about some troubling war games that are going to be happening in South Africa on the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. And these war games are going to be between South Africa, China, and Russia. South Africa is kind of a Russia ally. Then I also want to talk about Russian submarines being spotted in Hawaii and whether that's a threat. And then I also kind of want to just start this off by, sorry, you're going to have to excuse this beep. It's going to be fixed in a few minutes, but... Anyways, I want to also talk about Tucker Carlson and his just deep dives into fear-mongering, making everything an issue, a threat, an existential crisis, and why it's actually bad for his base, and it's bad for his viewers, and it's bad for the country. So we will start with that, because Tucker Carlson, to me, used to be actually one of the more sane figures on the right and on Fox News. Yes, I said that. Don't sue me. But there was a time when I actually would tell my parents or friends, I'm like, you know, Tucker actually seems a little bit more nuanced. He's a little bit smarter. He has kind of this populist thing going. It's not the worst. 
But then, like, overnight, he's just become this, like, white supremacist dog whistle. And maybe I never saw it. But it seems like to him, everything is a conspiracy. Everything is the elites coming after you. Everything is an existential risk. Everything's a conspiracy. And it's pretty much just, like, fanning the flames of his viewers to pretty much not trust anything. And we're going to talk about a few of his recent... I don't even know what to call them. His recent episodes, his recent conspiracies, his recent controversies. I don't really know. But he's had some really fun ones, to be honest. Like the M&M spokes candies. The biggest issue of our time. The M&M spokes candies. And I'm really a big fan of the M&M spokes candies. And the reason I am is because, look, everyone is trying to be more diverse. Everyone's trying to be more equitable. Focus on equity. Fine, that's good. Make the advertisements for a candy inclusive so they appeal to everyone in society. Because, look, white people have been doing fine for a long time. I'm sure if you make one of the M&Ms have a different persona, people will survive. And apparently, (laughs) Tucker has been attacking some of the characters for the M&M spokes candies. He's calling them woke (laughs) which look like there's some things out there that are woke, but a a, a freaking candy in a commercial for M&Ms woke. I don't know if that's really the problem, but it's interesting because Tucker's been attacking them on Fox news and he like spends a lot of time attacking them on Fox news because I think they had some new character that he wasn't a fan of. It was too woke. I don't even know. I don't really care except for it's just kind of funny. And he's waged a culture war campaign against the candies and I guess the irony here is that they actually were paused indefinitely like the advertisements with these candies and Tucker calls himself a champion of victims of cancel culture he's against cancel culture he's against the woke mob coming after cancel culture and then ironically he actually fights to get the M&M brand canceled or at least the spokes candies canceled at least for now and There's just something kind of insane about a guy on a network that millions of people watch. He's the most watched guy on cable TV, I believe. At least he was. And I don't know. It's it's, it's kind of ironic because a lot of people are struggling out there. And Tucker is focused on the characters of Eminem Spokes Candies. And now I guess Maya Rudolph is going to step in their place. So she's going to now be the spokesperson for Eminem. I don't know. I don't even know why I'm talking about this. As I'm talking about this, I'm questioning why I talked about this. But anyways, that's one of the things. So Tucker has found an issue of M&Ms and turned it into something that's a threat to his viewers' existence and their way of life and blah, blah, blah. And another one I like is a recent story. And this one is great. It's about a space vagina. (laughs) Yes, I said it, a space vagina. And he has been made fun of all over social media for this. And... Basically, this stems from, I don't even know how to completely get into this, but there's a clip of Carlson basically speaking about this cloud. So last week, there was a cloud in Turkey, in Bursa, Turkey, that, I mean, if you look at the cloud, it kind of looks like a vagina. And anyways, Tucker goes on a rant talking about this cloud. He says in quotes, you may have seen pictures of the very strangely shaped object that appeared in the skies over Turkey. And then he goes on to basically question it in his kind of conspiratorial way. He says, what is that exactly? It's not normal. No matter what they tell you, he says, while laughing. And (laughs) 
what they tell you, I mean, look, dude, it's a it's a weird looking cloud that kind of looks like a private parts, right? But he's making this into some like I don't know, questioning thing, just asking questions. No matter what they tell you, this isn't normal. It's like, dude, clouds look crazy, and people sometimes see things in clouds. Like, it's a lenticular cloud. And I don't know, it, it's just kind of hilarious that this was like the big thing that Tucker was focused on. And I'll get into why I think it's insane, but like, there are so many bigger issues once again that he could be talking about. And the last one I want to mention about Tucker is involving Mike Pence, right? We talked about how documents were found in Mike Pence's residence in Indiana. And look, like, I don't even want to talk about the hypocrisy of it because enough people have covered it. But it's not a good look for our friend Mike Pence because he said it's careless. He would never do that. And then all of a sudden they find documents as well. And so far, it looks like they reported it to the FBI, like he's cooperating. He's not doing what his former boss, Trump, has done. So, look, I'm not going to say he's being a ass like Trump in this case, but it is also just kind of a nightmare because it just seems like no one knows what to do with classified documents. But I talked about that yesterday. So the interesting thing here is that Tucker now has a conspiracy that he talked about on his show last night. And the conspiracy goes to the effect of they want to make Biden look better. Like they want to take some of the heat off of Biden. So attorneys basically had Pence show these documents. Like, because look, Trump had classified documents. He took them to Mar-a-Lago. They found Biden's documents for when he was VP. And now Tucker's theory is that lawyers had these reported to be found in Mike Pence's residence to kind of take some of the heat off of Biden. So basically the theory that Tucker has is that Pence is now working with the DOJ and Biden and the FBI to make Trump look worse and Biden look better. Of course, there's no evidence of that. Of course, it's just some speculation with no evidence that Biden has any collusion with Mike Pence. From everything I understand, Biden and Mike Pence are not exactly buddies. But the reason I bring up these three different I don't even, I mean, they're different, but they're the same because it's in each of them, it's like there's some sort of group or a they or us versus them that are conspiring against the Fox News viewer that is watching Tucker Carlson. And that's my issue with Tucker Carlson. The more I watch of him is that with someone like him, everything is a threat to his viewers existence because he tells them it is. And he's just asking questions. And Everything is some nefarious plot by others. The others are usually Democrats or scientists or vaccine people or people that don't support Trump or the establishment. Usually there's a like fine line, there's a through line through who he calls the them. And it's dangerous because it's just priming the pump for his base, his viewers, to just always distrust everything they see. Like, look, there's a cloud in the sky that looks like a, a private parts. It's not like some... Thing worth covering about maybe what they are telling you is wrong on Fox News. Nature's weird. Clouds look weird sometimes, dude. Like, I don't know what else to tell you there. But he's created this existential threat where everything is worth distrusting. And as our society gets more fragmented, I don't think it's very good. The Eminem spokes candies thing. It's made people now probably hate like a lot of marketing and branding and images of big companies because they're a threat to your existence when it's really not a big deal if one of the Eminems has maybe a progressive equity lens to their personality now. I don't care. I've never even seen these commercials that Tucker's complaining about. 
As for the space vagina, I couldn't care less, dude. Why are you talking about this when, like, there are so many issues that Fox News viewers are being impacted by, like every American? So, I don't know. Tucker's going crazy. He's deep diving into chaos. Some people still think one day maybe he runs for president. I sure hope not. Anyways, moving on to more important stuff. The rest of the episode, we are going to focus on pretty much everything somewhat in the orbit of Ukraine, Russia, its allies, global affairs involving that. So first, I wanted to start with an interesting story, at least fairly interesting news story, kind of between the United States and Russia. And it's more interesting to me than it's actually a big deal, but I thought it actually does highlight the frequency in which foreign vessels come into our U.S. economic zones and maybe why this could be problematic if you had some sort of escalation or accident happen, whatever it may be. And before I go into more of my thoughts on this, I'll give you the details. So basically a few days ago, the Coast Guard alerted us that it's been monitoring a Russian submarine that is operating in the Hawaiian area. Now, it's not like there's a Russian submarine showing up on the beach or something, but it's in technically U.S. territory. And the Coast Guard expressed concerns that this is or was, if I don't know if it's still there, but it was or is a spy vessel of some form. It was conducting spy operations in the area. And according to the reports, the agency is monitoring the ship using, in quotes, surface and air assets. I should note that right off the bat, apparently this is not a big deal. It's not really a security threat to the U.S. because the Coast Guard has noted this, and I think that I think this article I was reading from the Coast Guard's website sums this up pretty well. It says here in quotes, The presence of foreign-flagged military ships in the U.S. exclusive economic zone is neither illegal nor unusual. Later I'll get into how frequent this actually is, but I should also just clarify that the economic zone extends 200 nautical miles. That's about 230, 235 miles from U.S. territorial waters which are the maritime areas that extend 12 nautical miles from a country's beaches. So this is some weird nuance that I will not even pretend to understand, but the Russians clearly know where they can be and where they can't be, from what I understand, and they're in places they can be. So it's important to note this because I have seen some people in other podcasts and just online, I think it was on Reddit, (laughs) always a great source of news, but I've seen some people worried that this is like breaking international law or it's Russian aggression or it's them responding to what we're doing in Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. It's not. But I should also make it clear that some in our government do think that this timing is a bit strange. This arrival of a potentially spy vessel from Russia arriving in the U.S. vicinity near Hawaii, it's a bit strange, mainly because we know what's happening in Ukraine and they do keep threatening escalation. So, of course, you know, our ears are going to be raised. There's going to be red flags here, right? And Sabrina Singh, who is the Deputy Pentagon Press uh, Secretary, sorry, said in quotes, it was precarious timing for the vessel to be here. And yeah, I think that's probably pretty fair. And the Washington Post has a good article from a few days ago, and it goes into why there is more focus on this specific incident. The article discusses, in quotes, the presence of the suspected intelligence-gathering vessel attracted the attention of U.S. defense officials due to the Kremlin's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, as well as Moscow's previous naval encroachments near U.S. coastlines. And, I mean, again, I will get into this in a moment, but it does seem like the Russians are kind of, like, 
pushing it. It's like that kid who like gets away with something once and they want to see like how far they can push the envelope before it sticks, right? So now while this could be linked to Russia's current issues in Ukraine and threats towards the West, I think that that's not the case. It's an interesting story, and of course, like when you see the headline, Russian submarine near Hawaii, not a great vibe, but experts have noted that usually these spy ships just seek to obtain intelligence about an adversary's sea and air traffic near a port, as well as radio and radar signals. Apparently, they do this all the time. So from my understanding, especially actors like China and Russia do this with a lot of frequency, and... I just want to help illustrate this because I've been talking about how frequent it is. And it also does highlight, I think, why there could be pressure points in this. Or if an accident happens, there could be an issue. And I think it's also kind of a warning to what we probably do overseas. But anyways, in September last year, a U.S. Coast Guard vessel was on a routine patrol near Kiska Island in Alaska. And it ran into a convoy of Chinese and Russian naval vessels. And that was according to Coast Guard reports. Now... That doesn't sound great to me. Uh, I don't know if you ever want to run into a convoy of Chinese and Russian vessels, especially off the coast of the United States. But anyways, another example, and I'm just going to read this whole report. In December 2019, U.S. officials said a Russian spy ship, the Viktor Leonov, was sailing near the U.S. East Coast in an unsafe manner. It says in quotes here, this unsafe operation includes not energizing running lights while in reduced visibility conditions not responding to hails by commercial vessels, attempting to coordinate safe passage, and other erratic movements. And that was in a report from the Coast Guard in the Military Times. And now, again, like, this is all legal, technically, but, like, when you have a Russian vessel in waters that I guess are okay, when they're acting unsafe and could be a harm to other vessels in the area, that's where you could maybe see some sort of escalatory issue. Another example, in 2015... Pentagon officials raised an alarm over the Russian spy ship Yantar, which is equipped with deep-sea submersibles, after it cruised near the East Coast on its way to Cuba. And um, the article I was reading in the Military Times, as well as in the Washington Post, had like 15 different examples. I just named a few, but like, we constantly, and I didn't really know this, but we constantly are having these type of interactions. And so this new report to me, does not show that Russia is trying to do something to escalate some sort of conflict with us over our support to Ukraine. I don't think it's a threat to national security, technically, and obviously I don't work in that field, so I could be completely wrong. But I do think, just from an outside perspective, that this can highlight how these close, sometimes hostile interactions can create situations that escalate. To me, the bigger issue is that. And... When you have, for example, like that Russian vessel, the Viktor Leonov, not energizing running lights while in reduced visibility conditions, not responding to hails by commercial vessels, yeah, that's a big problem that could create some sort of accident. And if you look at a lot of our conflicts over history, sometimes accidents produce the worst wars or reduce, you know, produce the worst conflicts, whatever. So... Not a great story. I don't like to hear that there's these submarines so close to our borders, even though they can be. So fun stuff, but we'll move on. And speaking of escalation or something that could actually piss off the Russians so they do want to escalate the war in Ukraine, 
It looks like the Biden administration is finally sending tanks to Ukraine, and Germany's doing that as well. The Biden side, the U.S. side, doesn't surprise me as much as the German side. And, I mean, I don't want to go on too much of a rant about this, but I've been very furious about how Chancellor Schultz and a lot of the German government has really been dealing with this. I think they've bought Putin a lot of time in a lot of ways, and I'm glad they're doing this, but I think... I understand why a country like Germany would be hesitant to get militarily involved in a huge conflict, but when you have when you have the potential to do the right thing and you wait so long and become an uncertain actor in the phase, I think it becomes difficult. And I'll get into more of that in a little bit, but I just wanted to start with that because we could have sent them tanks like several weeks ago, but we were kind of waiting on Germany's indecisiveness basically to do this, and it's it's, it's kind of infuriating, but a few days ago, anyways, I noted that Germany was only going to send their Leopard tanks, which are German-made, but they're also exported to countries like Poland, and they're actually perfectly designed for Ukraine, that type of land. Like, they're amazing tanks. I've heard some of the, They're probably the best tank right now in the world. And Germany was not going to send them unless we sent ours, which... What are ours called? Uh, Abrams tanks, right? Yeah, Abrams tanks. Uh, they were not going to send their Leopards unless we sent our Abrams tanks because, you know, they didn't want to be unilaterally getting involved in this, which I understand. So I talked about how it was kind of a game of chicken between us and Germany. It looks like that has changed because The Economist has an article from today, and it reads in quotes here, The Biden administration said it will send 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine following Germany's decision to dispatch 14 of its Leopard tanks. President Joe Biden announced a $400 million package that will also include eight M88 excuse me, recovery vehicles, which can tow the Abrams. Germany's move, taken after much dithering, allows Poland and other countries to export their German-made leopards. And I, from what I've understood, and my, my friends with more military technology experience can correct me if I'm wrong, but... I have heard the Abrams tank, for as expensive as it is, is quite uh, flawed and has a lot of mechanical issues. So there are concerns about like whether the Ukrainian military is going to be prepared to deal with any like mechanical failures or issues that they may see. But that being said, they're going there, and looks like we have recovery vehicles. I'm sure we will help train them and all that jazz. And this is also kind of just a big deal, because almost six months ago, this seemed like something that was pretty much off-limits by the West, it seemed like offensive weapons or technology or vehicles were kind of off the table. Now, of course, it's been interesting, I guess, to say, because Germany for a while <laughs> would only send Ukraine helmets, and now they're doing this. So I, I do have to wonder like, what the conversations are like behind the scenes to get this big of a transformation to happen. And, I mean, I'm, I'm all here for it, but I am kind of shocked that Germany actually was down for this. And, of course, Russia is now saber-rattling, calling this a red line, threatening retaliation, I'm going to beat you like I've never beat you before type of stuff. And they, they do this all the time. And that being said, it doesn't really matter if we send tanks or not. Honestly, it doesn't, because Putin is angry. And he will blame us for our actions either way. Even if we don't send tanks, he will still say we crossed red lines. 
we will still use, you know, he will still use some BS justifications to start killing more people. It's like Putin's red lines are all rhetorical, right? Like no matter what we do, we've crossed a red line. So in my opinion, and this is my opinion, it could be wrong. I think we should have sent tanks like half a year ago. We should have sent offensive weapons half a year ago because Putin's red lines are not the red lines that we understand. And he just doesn't want anyone helping Ukraine. And as long as you help Ukraine or he's struggling, those are red lines. So you might as well just like poke the bear at this point, in my opinion. And of course, at this point, I think everyone knows that there's a second round of the war coming. And that really does worry me because, I mean, it, it really worries me a lot. Because if you look at a lot of the most more recent Russian conflicts over the last century, World War One, World War Two. Russia usually starts the first year, maybe two years of the conflict by losing a shit ton of troops and looking like they're going to be completely obliterated. And then the country seems to kind of slowly get its stability back as it just keeps sending more and more troops and kind of is good at causing stalemates, good at just sending people to the meat grinder, whatever you want to call it. And Russia's done fairly well in conflicts, not because of like military technology or strategy, but just because of size and just just again cannon fodder i guess and that's what worries me i mean i don't know if this is the case but i think it's pretty clear that like this is not just going to be some decisive ukrainian victory no matter what we hope for now that could be made better just because we are sending these tanks which can help you know the ukrainians really get into the into the east more but I don't know. It worries me that that things are changing. Now, of course, we have seen recent updates about the casualties of the Wagner Group, which I'll talk about a little bit later, and Kremlin officials jumping ship. But at the same time, that does not mean that Putin is giving up. I also think it might be the opposite. And I mean, there's one example from the Economist's World Briefing section that says it all. It writes here in quotes, Russia intensified its missile attacks on cities in Ukraine, Part of its strategy to bomb the population into submission. One rocket hit a residential block in Dnipro, killing at least 40 people. This was the single deadliest, sorry, the, the deadliest single loss of civilian lives in Russia's latest campaign. So for these reasons, it seems pretty damn obvious that Ukraine needs tanks, okay? And they need other forms of, of offensive missiles. And I'm just getting kind of irritated that Western powers have been doing this back and forth debate about giving more arms. All this has done, in my opinion, is buy Putin time, and it's given him the ability to keep just bombing the shit out of innocent people. And The Economist has a good article out today on this issue. It writes here in quotes, the way the decision came about, this is talking about the tanks, anyways, the way the decision came about prolonged Ukraine's agony, damaged Western unity, and benefited nobody except the man in the Kremlin. None of NATO's actors comes out of the latest drama well. But Germany emerges the worst. And I talked about this a little bit earlier. Even before the war started, Olaf Scholz, he just was reluctant and all over the place, but it wasn't like a non-interventional view either. It was kind of just all over the place. I remember at the beginning, they only gave Ukraine helmets. And then they've, like, been trying to go back and forth on this. Like, I'm not a huge Emmanuel Macron fan. 
But he's at least just taken a straight path of, like, I'm going to meet with Putin and I don't want a giant war in Europe. Like, he's kind of had a strong stance of, like, talking, but also still, like, sending aid if it's needed. But Germany's just been all over the place, and it's not been helpful. And, again, like, I think the U.S. and France have blood on their hands, too, in the case of just giving Putin more time. But, again, like, I mean, I'm sure I'll get pushback from this because, that being said, of course, democracies are complex, right? And I do think it's important that countries can't just wage war or fund a war or a conflict without the support of the public and without discourse and without, you know, some sort of dialogue about what we're doing. And now if the Republican Congress was a little bit more in good faith, I would understand why they would want to see where the money's going, especially after there's reports, you know, over the last 24 hours about top Ukrainian officials resigning from corruption charges. So I understand why you want oversight on where the money's going. Intervention is slow in democracies. And I understand that. But it just seems like we've been debating things that we ended up doing this whole war so far. Like, we've debated not sending any offensive weapons for a damn long time. And then we send them. It's like, (laughs) obviously we can't feel guilt over spilt milk at this point. So I guess we must be just thrilled at this point that Ukraine's getting tanks. But it's just like, why didn't we do this from the start? So anyways, wrapping up at least my thoughts for now, because, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens when they get the tanks. But speaking from the White House, President Joe Biden said the tanks, in quotes, would enhance Ukraine's capacity to defend its territories and achieve its strategic objectives. And that's in both the near and the long term. So I hope that's the case. I really do hope that's the case. I mean, I think the Ukrainian military deserves these. Of course, they're going to need to learn how to operate them, work on them if there's any mechanical failures, etc. But as... As great as Ukraine's been fighting and the early response from the West was great, I am a little bit irritated about how slow our response has been lately. And it's kind of disheartening. So I should also note that my only concern here, and I kind of alluded to this a few days ago, is that I'm, I, I wonder what happens next because these tanks are going to be very useful for the Ukrainians. And this will help them, I'm assuming push deeper into the east and the south, the Crimean area. And the issue here, though, is that Crimea sounds like a true red line for Russia. Most Russians view Crimea as part of Russia. So what happens when now the Ukrainians have kind of this new embattled tank service that's going into there? What does it mean when the Ukrainians start really pushing back deep into Crimea? Is that a true red line? Because I think like I think a lot of the idea of Putin trying to seize a lot of Ukraine is just some bullshit propaganda thing, like, you know, eradicating Nazis in Ukraine or whatever they talk about is just complete bullshit. But at the same time, Crimea has always been a big propaganda piece for a lot of the Russian people. And I worry that that's something that might like kind of unify a lot of the Russian population. So we'll have to see. Anyways, staying on the war on Ukraine for just another minute, real briefly. Well, actually, a couple of minutes because we're going to talk about two more things. Uh, the Wagner Group, who I have covered pretty extensively on older episodes. I kind of do a deep dive into their origins. Anyways, the Wagner Group is really not having a great week or couple weeks. First off, I will say that Congress, the American Congress, is looking to designate the Wagner Group as a terrorist organization. Uh, 
which it definitely is, by the way, but The Hill has a good piece on this from earlier. It writes here in quotes, The Holding Accountable Russian Mercenaries Act, HARM, I love how they always have great acronyms for this, but anyways, HARM is sponsored by nine members of the lower chamber, and it looks to require the State Department to basically designate the Wagner Group as an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization, within 90 days of becoming law. And the article discusses things that I've talked about, and I think it's good reasons why the Wagner Group is a terrorist group. It talks about the lawmakers cited the paramilitary company's history of human rights violations in Africa and ongoing deployment of private soldiers in Ukraine to fight with Russia, adding that the Wagner Group has received weapons from North Korea, a U.S.-designated state sponsor of terrorism. Of course they are. I didn't have to tell you that's the case. (laughs) And the interesting thing, though, and I... I have this pulled up here because it's a little bit confusing, but the Wagner Group also appears to be losing lives quite, like, dramatically. And the reason I say this is because there's a cemetery which is used by Russia's notorious Wagner Group, and satellite images show that the number of graves at a cemetery used by them has grown dramatically. And... There's, this, there's an NBC News article that says here, an image of the same area taken on November 24th appears to show around 17 graves. However, a photograph taken on January 24th by Maxar Technologies, a U.S. defense contractor headquartered in Colorado, shows at least 120 bari- sorry, 121 burial spots in a section of the cemetery allotted to fighters from the private military company. And the article just talks about how This apparent expansion at the site, which is around 200 miles from Crimea, comes after the group was actually credited with taking the town of Solidar in eastern Ukraine. So, I don't know. I don't know if the Wagner group is, like, doing great here or not, but it looks like they are having significant losses. And as we are looking at them as a significant transnational criminal organization... It seems like, as the Russian military keeps getting depleted, it's not a good look for them to also be seeing similar issues. Anyways, last but not least, it looks like South Africa, Russia, and China are be going are going to be doing something like a joint naval exercise, according to CBS and Foreign Policy magazine. In quotes. Next month, on the one-year anniversary of the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, South Africa will be hosting Russia and Chinese forces for a joint naval operation. The timing of the drills, which were apparently planned during Vladimir Putin's unprovoked assault on Ukraine, have the U.S. concerned. And I've covered this fairly extensively, but Africa in general has stayed fairly neutral in the entire conflict, and you have a lot of... I think part of it is is that you've had a lot of civil wars and conflicts that have happened over the last like half a century, and Russia's really helped a lot of Marxist movements in the area, so I think there's a lot of nostalgia and kind of sympathy for the Russian cause. Also, Russia just gives a shit ton of weapons to Africa, and so, but, but I mean, there's also an irony here is that even though a lot of the African continent has stayed fairly neutral in the conflict... I would argue Russia's actions are harming the continent, mainly because of, like, grain and food shortages, which are being exacerbated by uh, climate change. But anyways, 
that is a whole other story. But so we have three countries taking part in the exercises and they are all members of the BRICS mechanism, which is not NATO. It's not a military alliance like NATO, but I think they want to do stuff similar to NATO. BRICS, BRICS, if you want to call it that, is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. A really fun group. It's like every country to me that has like corrupt leaders. <laughs> Anyways, according to the group's own description, it aims to promote peace, security, development, and cooperation. Now, none of those words go with what Russia is doing in Ukraine and what China probably wants to do to Taiwan. So I call that whole description kind of BS, but that's a conversation for another time. That's a song for another time. And it is interesting that all of these groups are like, well, a few of them are technically democracies. The other two are just blatantly not. And an organization like this that is openly working together is a little bit concerning to me. And again, like I said, I think there is a big history for why this is happening. I want to read something out of Al Jazeera because people always go like, why would South Africa want to work with an oppressive regime to Ukraine after we have seen what happened in South Africa for a long time under the apartheid state, for example. And Al Jazeera writes, South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress, which is the ANC, has long-standing relations with Moscow. And, they for and these were forged during the liberation struggle against apartheid. Many of the ANC leaders were educated or received mil military training in the Soviet Union. Some, like the late Eric Stalin Mistali, have Russian nicknames thanks to their connections to Moscow. The article continues later. The Soviet Union backed the liberation movement with arms and money. This was a stark contrast to the West, where the U.S. labeled the ANC a terrorist organization. Washington considered the liberation hero Nelson Mandela a terrorist until 2008. Now, this all makes sense to me in a sense. And Russia's also, much like China, been very involved in the continent. And it kind of makes sense when you think about some of these stories. It really does. It, it, it really definitely does. And, of course, the irony here is that South Africa is one of the countries that voted against condemning Russia at the UN. And South Africa is one of the countries that says the only way to end this conflict is through diplomacy. Isn't Russia the one who's not willing to talk and they're using like violent force instead of diplomacy? Tell me if I'm wrong, but it's all just kind of crazy. The world's crazy. We have, we have strange alliances. But anyways, that's going to wrap us up for today. I got to get out of here. It's getting late. So I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. I will be back. Have a great night. Avita Singh.